And I'm not going to talk to you for uh, terribly long, again, a shorter evening tonight, but tonight is Good Friday. It's the day that we commemorate the historically verified death of Jesus Christ on the cross at the hands of the Roman Empire, instigated by some of his opposing Jewish religious leaders, but ultimately by the sovereign plan of God to rescue and redeem humanity. The events of Good Friday began the night prior to Good Friday when Jesus had a meal with some of his closest followers. And he started the meal by washing their feet. And after modeling the most incredible act of service and washing their feet, he ate with them. And during the meal, he talked to them about love and covenant and the Holy Spirit and overcoming evil in the world. After dinner, he spent several hours praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane means oil or wine press. It was a place where grapes were crushed to produce wine or olives were crushed to release oil. After his prayer in the garden of the wine press, he was betrayed by one of his closest followers. He was arrested and the rest of his followers ran away from him. He was subjected to five separate unjust trials. There was no evidence brought against him. There was no shred of wrongdoing, nothing that warranted it. Each of the five trials brought a wave of assault and beatings to them. In one of his trials, a crown of thorns was placed on his skull, and then with sticks and stabs, it was smashed into his head. Ultimately, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who knew that he was innocent and actually washed his hands and said to the crowd, this man is innocent and I want nothing to do with this, but if you insist on executing him, I will allow it. And he ordered him to be scourged and he was beaten and scourged by the dreaded Roman cat of nine tails, which was this vicious whip. And these Roman soldiers were so skilled at this particular act of scourging, they could bring a victim right to the point of death and then just suspend them there. A lot of times victims did die from the scourging. But after Jesus was scourged, he was forced to carry his own cross. And how sadistic is that? To torture someone and then make them carry their own crucifixion execution device. He couldn't carry it. He was too weakened, and so a stranger, a foreigner, a man named Simon from Cyrene, he was African, helped him carry the cross. When they got to the place of Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, he was nailed to the cross with nails through his wrists and his feet. And while he was hanging on the cross, he made seven statements, each statement so profound that it has inspired waves of PhD research projects through the centuries. While he was hanging there, there was a solar eclipse or something similar that blotted out the sun. Finally, a spear was pushed through his side and up into his heart so that blood and water poured out. And when he died, there was an earthquake that shook the city. And the Roman officer who was standing at the foot of the cross worshiped. 
and said, surely this man is the son of God. And when Jesus died, the religious Jewish leaders thought that they were eliminating a threat to their way of life. Pontius Pilate thought that he was smoothing over a potential Jewish uprising. Satan thought that he was killing the son of God, but God was actually killing sin. When Jesus was on the cross, the most profound thing happened. As the son of God, the weight of the brokenness and the damage and the trauma of sin was wrapped up into his own being. The Bible tells us that the wages or the cost of sin is death. But, but, but we actually don't need the Bible to tell us that. We know that. Sin always brings death. Um, lying kills trust. Abuse kills innocence. Pride kills relationships. Sin always kills. And so as the son of God, Jesus had that wrapped up in his own being. Do you remember that the Bible says he was made a curse for us? As the son of God, he absorbed the sin. As the son of man, he died under the crushing cost of sin. But, but in the most incredible act of cosmic genius... God somehow so interconnected Jesus and sin that when the spear passed through his heart naturally, another spear was piercing the root of sin. And so as the son of God, Jesus absorbed the sin. As the son of man, he died under the sin. But then on Easter Sunday, as the son of God, he rose as the son of man leaving his grave clothes, the, the death coverings behind him, and then walking out of an empty tomb with an open doorway as a prophetic picture that through Jesus, death has been opened and it's no longer uh, the end of the story. And that's what we celebrate and commemorate on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And what I want to do tonight for just a few minutes is I want us to think about one of the things that Jesus did after he was raised from the dead when he first met with his followers. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the first person he appeared to was Mary Magdalene. Then he appeared to some of the other women, and, and they were commissioned as the first New Testament messengers they were the first preachers in the New Testament carrying word of the resurrection of Jesus. But it was in the evening of Easter Sunday that Jesus met with his, uh, his 12 disciples minus Judas who had betrayed him. And, and I'll read a scripture to you that will be up on the screen from John chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, you can open to John 20 or I guess look at your phones or if it's too dark, just trust me that I'm actually reading you John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. 
And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And people often question, what did he mean by that last statement? Was he talking about priests that, you know, absolve people of sin? Do his followers actually have the ability to forgive or, or retain sins for people? But, and those are great theological discussions, but think of where he just came from in this moment. Jesus had just borne the full crushing weight of the sins of the world and destroyed it. The cross was ground zero for God's attack on the sins of the world. Jesus had just um, emerged from that. He was radiating forgiveness. He was the living, breathing antidote to the poison of sin. So when he breathed on them and said, receive my spirit, they had to receive some of that too. And they were just clothed with this antidote and this remedy and this answer for sin. But, but when Jesus said, notice these words, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And I want to spend just a few minutes here talking to you about something specific on this Good Friday. I want to talk to you from the scriptures for just a couple minutes about your deputyship. So the, the title of this Good Friday talk tonight is Deputized. I, I think we all have an idea of what it means to be deputized. We've seen those old Western films. We've seen the old Clint Eastwood or the old spaghetti Western films where there's a band of outlaws terrorizing a town. And so eventually a, a sheriff or a, a marshal or a judge uh, takes a, a, a badge kind of like this one and throws it to some cowboy and Paul Spencer, you, you kind of look like a cowboy tonight. Do you mind? I mean, you're, did you know I was going to do this? You, you, got a, you got a sidearm on you there? You got the vest and even wearing a cross. So I'm going to give that to you. Um, don't, don't stick it through the leather vest. But, um, but this judge or the sheriff would, would toss a badge to some cowboy and would tell them, you are now a deputized lawman. Deal with these outlaws. Deputized means to be endowed with someone else's authority. It means to be an agent of a higher power. And when the agent of the higher power shows up, the weight of that power shows up with them. Uh, my dad was a deputy sheriff. I think I have a picture of my dad on the screen, my dad was the, the undersheriff of our county. As the undersheriff, as a deputy sheriff, when he would show up for a call, the full weight of the sheriff's office showed up with him. When he made a call or an arrest or an investigation, he wasn't doing it on his own authority. He was doing it with the authority of the office that <clears throat> had sent him. When Jesus said... As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Those were deputizing words. And we know he was deputizing them because he did it the exact same way that he was deputized. Remember, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was a deputy. 
He was a representative of God the Father. Jesus is God as part of the Trinity, but in his ministry, do you remember when John dunked him in the Jordan River? And when Jesus came up, the Holy Spirit came upon him and he was empowered to do the Father's will. Jesus even said, I only say and do what I receive from my Father. So when Jesus said, receive the Spirit, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He was commissioning the disciples and those early uh, deputies were paving the way for you and me to follow. Um, Here's one of the messages of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. One of the messages that these stories tell us is that you have been deputized for your life. No matter what your life throws at you, no matter where your life takes you, good chapters, bad chapters, highs, lows, false starts, regroupings, unexpected um, joy, crushing sorrow, whatever it is, whatever life brings to you, you have been deputized to face it and overcome it. You've been commissioned for your life. I want to just have us look at one Old Testament passage that uses some of this deputizing language. It's from Nehemiah chapter 6. It's a critical moment in Israel's story when Nehemiah was helping the people rebuild the burned down walls of Jerusalem after their exile. And Nehemiah 6 verse 1 says these words. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent the same message to me. And each time I gave them the same answer. Four times, Nehemiah's enemies hit him. They hit him over and over and over and over. And every single time he responded the same way. He said, I am carrying on a great project. The word project in the Hebrew language means deputyship. It means ministry. It means work done by a commissioned officer. So every time these enemies rallied to pull him off track, to stop the work, he responded by saying, hey, I've been deputized to finish this task. Why should I leave it? Why should the work stop while I come down to you? And those are interesting words also in the Hebrew. When he says, leave it and come down, it's two different words that both mean the same thing. They mean to sink down. Um, How often do you sink in a given month or a given day? It's kind of amazing how quickly the human heart can sink, isn't it? We can go from the highest heights to the lowest depth, the right phone call, 
the right message, the right piece of news, and our hearts can just sink to the basement. What, what does a sinking heart feel like? Doesn't it feel like dread or, or despair or anxiety or, or this discouragement that makes us want to run away? Um, ne- Nehemiah said, why should a man like me run away? Why should I sink to the neglect of my deputyship? So he says it twice. Why should I sink and then sink some more when I've been commissioned to this amazing, glorious task? In verse 11, he said, should a man like me run away? And what's a man like him? It's a deputized man, a deputized woman. Should someone like me who's been commissioned and authorized to this task run away? I will not go. You have been deputized for your life. So what, what are you facing? What's, what's happening? What, what are you praying about? What are, what are you hoping begins or ends in your life right now? You have been deputized for your life. Now, you're not Jesus, but you have been deputized to represent Jesus no matter what it is that you're facing. In fact, the same spirit that was on Jesus can be on you and me, and that spirit can make us buoyant and unsinkable. Even when the enemy of your soul is trying to knock a hole in your foundation to sink you like a rock, you know, the good news on Good Friday is that Jesus sank first and then rose. Jesus sank first. When he died, they buried him in a tomb. When Peter and John came to investigate, they had had to stoop and bend down to get in. Ephesians 4 said that he descended to the lower parts of the earth. Every time you sink, there are two truths happening around you. Jesus sank first. So he knows all about sinking So you're not as alone as you think you are in those sinking moments. But number two, Jesus rose and you have been deputized to rise. One of my Bible college teachers who became kind of a mentor from afar to me went through a really painful time in his life. He got deeply hurt in a relationship. He went through a a very painful divorce and being a public figure, Everybody knew about it, and, and it was a really tough time. He was at kind of an all-time low, and his dad wrote him a letter. His dad was a military officer, um, not a touchy-feely affirming guy, but his dad wrote him a letter. It had one sentence. In this lowest ebb of his life, he opens this letter from his dad, and all it says was, son, you will continue to rise, and you will too. You have been deputized, authorized, and commissioned for your life. So so what does that mean? It means you have been deputized to be salt and light in your part of the world. You have been deputized to instill certain values in your little kids. You have been deputized to navigate difficult relationships. You've been commissioned and empowered to go through hard things in your good story. In fact, you've been deputized to discern God's will for your life. We are not left alone. 
We've been commissioned and empowered for what God wants to do in our life. I, I have a little, a little gift for all of you tonight. It's just a little, a little trinkety gift. But I bought enough of these little badges <laughs> for everyone to have one. So in, in just a few minutes, we're going to receive communion. I'll invite Amanda and the, the worship team back up. And when you receive communion, there's a little bucket of these badges. And, and you don't have to keep this forever. You don't have to start wearing this to show that you're a member of Hope City Church. But, but I'd like you to keep it for about a week. And I would love for you to put it somewhere where you're going to see it multiple times in the next week because I want it just to be a reminder that you have been empowered for your life. A lot of times, life makes us feel like we've lost our power, we've lost our edge, we've lost our ability to do what we're supposed to do. Not so. There's an anointing from the Holy Spirit. There's a breath of Jesus Christ that can fill us. We're not Jesus. We're not the sheriff who showed up in town, but we've been deputized, and we've been authorized, and we've been commissioned. And he told his followers, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Until your dying breath, God will be with you. Then it even tells us in the Psalms, after that, he will receive me into glory. Because of what Jesus accomplished, the back of sin has been broken. The sealed uh, completeness of death has been opened. Life is available. One of the Bible teachers I loved uh, listening to years ago used to say that because of Jesus, life is dangerously present. Why don't you stand with me? The way we're going to receive communion tonight on Good Friday is we're just going to let you do it on your own as part of your worship. We're going to do maybe two more songs, two-ish more songs. And there will be time for you to come up and take the, the bread and then take a cup. And you can take it back to your seat or you could circle up with friends or family if you want to do it together. And I just want you to have a few minutes where you can remember what Jesus did and what he accomplished and what that means for you. And I want us to leave tonight more humble, more devoted, more worshipful, but with more of a swagger that we are here to do the will of God and we will accomplish the will of God in our generation. And he is big and he is for us and we are his and God will do incredible things in our lives. So Jesus, thank you for the bread. Thank you for the cup. Thank you for what it means, a new covenant, a new start, a new relationship that's more legal and binding than any contract we could draw up and yet more loving and powerful and profound and committed than any heart commitment could ever be. Thank you, Jesus, for going first. You've already descended into the depths. Lord, you went deeper than we've ever gone, and you rose. So I pray that every person under this tent would continue to rise, and that this would be a fresh beginning tonight. We thank you, Jesus. We worship you. Tonight, let us leave our sins here under the tent. Let us leave our struggles let us leave our doubts. Let us leave our perplexity. Let us lead our chaos. And let us, let us emerge new, fresh, alive in Jesus' name.